The following audio is from Emmanuel Baptist Church. More information about Emmanuel is available at our website, www.myemmanuel.net. And I saved the very best one for last. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, this morning we heard from Pastor Bill and Pastor Ryan. But I've asked Pastor Eddie to come and speak on the priority of worship. And out of all the guys, who better to do that than the worship leader who stands before you each and every week? Uh, Eddie and Jane. Is Jane in here? Jane, wave. Jane's over here. Eddie and Jane have been married almost 24 years? Yeah, almost 25 years. Put him on the spot. Almost 25 years. Jane's seven. Yes, he's right. So uh, they they have two children, Allie and Tate. He's been our worship leader for five years. He's got some Bible college behind him. He's got education degree. He's got a little French. He's got a little music. All of that goes together. Uh, and uh, we've just delighted. It's been just one of, the, one of the great delights of my life to walk out each week to uh, bring to you the Word of God and be able to do that after Eddie has led you in hearts of praise. Oh, and so thanks. today, I want you to express your affection and love to Eddie as he brings us God's Word. Oh, thanks, Pastor. Yeah, so I want you to know right off the bat that uh, this is Pastor Paul's idea. So if you have any critiques or criticisms or angry emails, they should be sent to Pastor Paul at dot. No, I'm just kidding. You know, I have to admit that uh, I'm up here often in stage in front of you, but I feel more comfortable if I had my band with me and a guitar wrapped around me. I feel a little more secure. But I, I am passionate about worship, and I'm glad to talk to you about it. And, and narrowing it down to like a half an hour was pretty hard. But we're going to do it. Uh, Worship is our priority because our biblical priority is to glorify God in all that we do as a lifestyle of worship. Now, we we throw terms around fairly loosely like worship because I'm the worship pastor. I'm the only pastor that worships. This is not true. All the pastors on staff are worship pastors. And we can carry that further because I'm the worship pastor that does music. Then that means the music aspect is worship. And that's not true either. Carry it even further, because I'm the worship pastor that does worship music during a Sunday worship service. That Sunday during the worship service is the time that we worship. And that's not true either. It's not incomplete. It's just not a complete uh, idea of that. So here's my plan. I want to go through uh, what worship looks like, what worship is, and what it looked like biblically, and how music plays a role in that. So I I know there's a lot there. But we're going to get through it. But before we do that, let's pray. Lord, I come before you. Uh, you know my heart. Lord, you know I love worship. And so, Lord, I just want to represent you well. I want to represent worship well. And, Lord, I pray that it would make us better worshipers. And, Lord, I pray, more importantly, that uh, what I teach and what I preach here, whatever is true, Lord, that that will be what sticks in our minds. So, Lord, we give you this time, and uh, we want to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, what is worship? I hate to start with a cliche, uh, to start with a definition, but I think that's going to help us for all intents and purposes this morning. And two words that we kind of synonymously use together is praise and worship. And so I want to demystify those two and what they are. And so let's start with praise. Praise is a joyful expression of one's admiration and gratitude. 
so praise is universal. We use this often. Uh, I might say this to my wife saying, hey, Jane, I praise you for a great meal. I might talk to my kids. I praise you for, uh, you know, getting good grades. So it's a universal term. We use it in the sense of worship to direct admiration and thanksgiving to our God, obviously. But worship goes beyond that. Praise is a part of worship, but worship goes beyond that. Worship comes from the Old English, meaning worth and giving something shape or quality. So what we're doing is giving our worship quality what is worth to us, what is, what is most valuable, what we hold in high esteem. And for us as believers, we know that that's God. And uh, so what you'll see in the Old Testament and New Testament as far as translation of worship, the word that's used most often, is more of a word picture. And it looks like this, right? We're bowing, we kiss the ground. What it is is submission to God. And so the word translates as a word picture to bow down before. John Piper says, true worship is a valuing or a treasuring of God above all things. Man was created to worship. He was created to glorify God. Revelations 4.11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. Now, a few things with this. Uh, Because we were created to glorify God, uh, he doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to do that. He even says that he'd make the rocks cry out if needed to. He'd make the trees clap their hands. He doesn't need us to entertain him. That's not the reason he created us. And he definitely didn't create us to be peers, as if to bounce ideas off us. God is God, but what he is is relational. And God desires to have a relationship with you. And because all men are created in this image and created to worship, this is also seen with non-Christians. They might worship the wrong thing, but we can see the evidence of it. I want to show you a picture. So they're going to pull this picture on screen. So there's a picture there of a concert. Now, if I told you, you would think that that's a worship concert, but it's not. It's a secular concert. But look at how they're raising their hands, the posture, the worship, in a sense. Misguided, but the external, which you see externally, is the same thing. And we see this. There's many examples of this. Man was created to worship, and so we see um, that it's just not complete. So here are the requirements for true worship. Now, a couple of these are, are pretty easy. I mean, we know these, but I don't want to assume anything. And that is, first of all, that worship is reserved for God only. Secondly, you must be a believer. You must have the Holy Spirit. God has given us a helper to understand his truths. But these next two are the ones I want to focus and talk more about. One is the mind. The mind must be centered on God's truth. John 4:24. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. And we'll talk more about this in a little bit. True worship is centered on the truth of God's word. The next one is heart. And from the heart flows our sincerity, our authenticity, our excitement, and our expressiveness. Psalm 86.12 says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. There's our praise. O Lord, my God, with all my heart, there's our authenticity, sincerity, and will glorify your name forever. There's our worship. You see, he's relational. 
He wants us not just to involve the mind, but also involve the heart. But the heart seems to be the big stumbling block for us a lot of times. We, we know what's true. We know God is God. But somehow, relationally, our heart, um, that's hard to involve sometimes. So right now, I just want to, now that we have an understanding here, I want to look in the Bible at some stories, and uh, more importantly, in the Old Testament, before the cross. So if you'll turn to Genesis 4, I want to read the story of Cain and Abel. Now, most of us know this. Starting in verse 2, and I have to put on my glasses, not to see, but just so it gives me credibility. (laughs) Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said, Cain, why are you so angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door, and it desires to have you, but you must master it. Uh, admittedly, this story has always plagued me a little bit, and the reason being is I felt it was incomplete. I needed to know what Cain's offering was. We see what Abel's was, but I thought I needed to know what Cain's was in order to judge whether his offering was acceptable or not. But what God is saying here, uh, it's not so much about the gift as it is the giver. I don't know what Cain's offering was. It was the first fruits of his crops. And I don't know if he just picked them off the ground, if they were rotten, or it was just what was on the ground, or if he actually picked it. I don't know if it was Brussels sprouts and squash, which I wouldn't blame God for taking, because I wouldn't take it either. (laughs) It could have also been, it was a great offering. Just no sincerity or heart behind it. He may have just grabbed stuff and put it in a basket and brought it as an offering. It's not that it was vegetables or fruit or anything that was wrong, Uh, That was oftentimes an offering. It was that there was no sincerity behind it. And we see that in the fact that he's angry. God talks to him about this. Why are you so angry? So we see his heart. You don't go from zero to 60 without hitting 10, 20, 30, 40, right? So Cain was already there on the brink. And when God questioned him, it sent him over the edge. And we know the rest of the story. He killed his brother Abel. And if you, I'll just turn to it. You guys don't have to turn to it. But in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith in verse 4 says, By faith Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith he was commended as a righteous man. So we know that with Abel, it involved the mind and the heart. He had a relationship. It was based on truth. Uh, We fast forward a little bit, and I don't have to spend much time on this, luckily, because Pastor Paul has discussed this to length as we've been going through Hebrews. It's been great sermons as far as the tabernacle and the temple and what that meant in the Mosaic Law. It became a part uh, of the temple worship and and making sacrifices. Um, To go to a priest, you went to the temple. The priest was the mediator for you. There were mandatory sacrifices. There were voluntary sacrifices. There was one on the Day of Atonement that happened every year where an offering was made for your sin to atone for the sin of the nation. So we see a very prescribed um, offering or rituals. Um, What it was meant to do is foreshadow what was to come, Christ's death and his atonement for our sin. Uh, 
but it was very ritualistic. Uh, it was just rules. It lacked heart. We see this in Isaiah twenty nine thirteen. So as the Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they've been taught. So we see in this time that the Jews were just going through the motions and going through uh, what they had been taught, and there was no sincerity, no heart. It wasn't authentic. Human nature has a way of making the wonderful become ordinary. What I mean by that is uh, a little illustration. Uh, like was said, Jane and I have been married for 24 years, and in that marriage in the beginning, you know that the birthdays come. And admittedly, in the beginning, uh, when it came time for her birthday, I'd planned for it. It'd be a month ahead. I'd think of ideas. What could I get her? What would she like? Maybe she's dropped some hints. I'd even be caught in Forever 21 or some of those girl stores to shop. I'd do it. And I tried to pick something that she would like. My dedication to the offering for Jane was a mind and heart. I knew the date, and I wanted it to be sincere. And so I do that. Now, fast forward a few years, uh, then it becomes more like, whoa, I got two weeks till Jane's birthday. Uh, hey, babe, what do you want for your birthday? Can you give me a list? So then I get this list. Well, she didn't really know what she was going to get completely. I still would pick some things from the list. Uh, some sincerity behind the gift, right? But when I give it to her, uh, you notice that I don't have the heart behind it, and she doesn't accept it probably as greatly as the previous when uh, I put a lot of heart behind it. Fast forward even more years, it becomes more like, whoa, two days till your birthday. What do you want for your birthday? There's no sincerity in that, is there? So the deal is, when I give the offering, I don't feel very good about it because I haven't put much thought into it. And I know I can share that with you because you're probably all like me. This is where the wonderful becomes ordinary. And that's what was happening, happening in these times uh, of the temple worship. I want to go to another story. This story is in John 4. And we know the story well. It is the story of the Samaritan woman or the woman at the well. Jesus and the disciples are headed back to Galilee. And what was always a custom was to go around Samaria. But instead, Jesus chooses to go through it as a shortcut. Uh, now, the Jews, as we know, despised the Samaritans. They were half-bloods, half-breeds, part Jew, but they really assimilated a lot of other religions and other cultures. So, as they're going, uh, Jesus comes to the well, and he's going to stay there and rest. The disciples go on ahead to go into town to get some food and water. Jesus is tired, and he's sitting at the well. As he does, a Samaritan woman comes to the well, and they have this interchange. It's in the midday in the heat, and Jesus asks for some water. And he kind of replies in saying, if you knew who it was, you ask, you'd ask me for water. I'd give you eternal water. He's sharing the gospel with her at this time. Things get a little bit tense when he starts to ask, why don't you bring your husband, come back here, and we'll discuss this more. And she says, I, I don't... I don't have a husband. He goes, no, the fact is you've had five. And the one you're with now is not your husband. So here's what I want to pick up in verse 19. She's really uncomfortable. She's trying to change the subject. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped 
on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where you must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now here's the part we want to catch. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and the worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. We even see this when Jesus was uh, clearing out the temple. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it. What he's telling the Samaritan woman is, there's a, a time coming and it's now to come because Christ is here where it's not going to matter where you worship. It doesn't matter where the temple is. So we fast forward to the cross. And as we do, we know that Christ died for our sins that uh, the temple is no longer he is the new temple and that temple is going to dwell in us uh, as he gives us his Holy Spirit we also know that when he died in the temple the veil was torn from top to bottom by God meaning there's no need for any other mediator other than Christ Christ is our mediator and there's also no need for blood sacrifices anymore because Christ atoned for them all Christ was the atonement for our sin his blood covered all So the point of going to the temple anymore to perform these rituals was not needed anymore. What it was now was a living sacrifice. We are living sacrifices. It's an inward submission to God. I want to read to you, uh, and you don't have to turn there, uh, Romans 12.1, and many of us know this. It says, therefore, and this therefore is a big therefore. He's going back to the 11 chapters already discussed that we're all talking about God's grace and mercy. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This, this is your true and proper worship. I want to read this same passage to you out of message, because I just love the way it words it. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you, take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. You see, now we've entered into a time after the temple where there is no separation between the secular and the sacred. Right? You can't go to work and live one way and come to church or hang out with your Christian friends and live another way. This is not a living sacrifice. As it says here, take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. So it's every aspect of your life is worship. So if you come here for Sunday morning hoping to get that feeling, to be in awe of God, but you haven't done anything throughout the week because you're not really living that way, and I'm talking to myself too, then we're not going to get much out of this time. We might leave going, I wasn't really moved by the music. I wasn't really moved by the sermon. Well, you haven't really been spending time with God. Um, and and that, that's a thing of conviction. The heart is an easy stumbling block. Uh, so because we know more about worship and what worship looks like, uh, my role here as worship pastor is to include music in the worship. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about music and worship. Psalm seventy-one, twenty-three, 
says, My lips will shout for joy when I sing praise to you, I whom you have delivered. Worship allows us to be expressive, to be expressive, but yet it also makes us a little bit vulnerable, and we don't like to be vulnerable. If you were to take your Bible and split it right in half, you'd probably come to the book of Psalms. It's a big hymnal right in the middle of your Bible. And it's written primarily by David. I love David. He's authentic. He was passionate. He was excited. He was real. And you see that if you've never read through the Psalms, I encourage you to do that. You get to see David in all aspects of life, from his downs to his highs. And you might think, this guy is a good candidate for medication. And he kind of was, because he was so passionate about it, but he was real with God. Even if it was in a time where things were not going right, he was just honest with God. Another one is at the Lord's Supper. And this is funny because uh, we always seem to pass over this, over this part. When they're in their upper room for the Last Supper, and they take the cup, and they take the bread, but at the very end is one verse. Verse 30, it says, When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You ever picture Jesus singing a hymn with his disciples? Now, this isn't the kind of hymn that we might sing now. It was during the Passover, so this is what they would call the Hillel. So it's a Psalms 113 through 118. And what that sounded like, I don't know. But they would sing through the hymns. But the idea of Jesus singing hymns with his disciples, I can see the disciples just kind of hearing to see what kind of voice maybe he had. But it's a great picture. I love it. Um, So what is the purpose of music? Songs awaken truths to us. Um, For instance, you might be driving in your car, you hear a song on the radio, and that song just hits you. You just instantly drop into tears. And I admittedly so, that's happened to me more and more as I matured my faith. It seems like I've become more tenderhearted to what God does in our life and how wretched man is. But the song moves me. And because I'm moved, I tend to think that James put an estrogen in my coffee, but I can't prove it. (laughs) But uh, anyway, there's a song. I wanted to demonstrate this to you. Uh, Right now, this is kind of my jam. And this song I heard on the, I heard it, I bought the album and listened to it, and it hit me right away. And it's by Mercy Me, Even If. And it says, It is easy to sing when there's nothing to bring me down. But what will I say when I'm held to the flame like I am right now? I know you're able, and I know you can. Save through the fire with your mighty hand. But even if you don't, my hope is you alone. And you put that to music, and somehow it just ties the mind and the heart. You remember the truths that God is speaking to you. At least for me, and I might be weird, and I am. I know that. Um, mu- music can also help us remember things and remember Scripture. Micah 6.8. You know Micah 6.8? He has shown thee, O man, what is good. Remember? And I can remember that Scripture because of that song. Another one uh, is, Beloved, let us love one another. Right? First John 4, 7 and 8. I can remember those scriptures because I can put them to music, and I'll remember them forever. Uh, it's a great uh, way to remember God's truths. 
Another reason for music is to express unity corporately. Uh, one of the great highlights for me uh, in my ministry on Thursdays and Sunday is to spend time with my worship team. I'm not going to lose it. <laughs> See, the estrogen is kicking. Um, they're such a good group of people. They are probably some of the most humble people, very talented people. And when I get to rub shoulders and work alongside with them, God gets the glory, I get the benefits, and I get the joy. And then when I come alongside in front of you and we worship, and I see you guys sing and you're engaged in it, it does the same thing. God gets the glory, I get the benefits, and I get the joy. But with this said, worship can be a great source of contention. I want to read to you a quote. It's found in Rick Warren's book, uh, The Purpose Driven Church. And it says this. It's a quote from James Dobson. James Dobson once admitted on his Focus on the Family program that of all the subjects we've ever covered in this radio program, from abortion to pornography to whatever, the most controversial subject we've ever dealt with is music. You can make people more mad about music more quickly than anything else. The debate over music styles has divided and polarized many churches. I guess that's why Spurgeon called the music ministry the War Department. Rick Warren goes on to say, Why do people take disagreement over worship styles so personally? Because the way you worship is intimately connected with the way God made you. Worship is your personal expression of love for God. When someone criticizes the way you worship, you naturally take personal offense. I don't know about you, but that was like in 95, and when I read that, I couldn't believe it. But he's right. I've been on the receiving end of that many times, fingers in the face, yelling, ultimatums. Uh, and it's not fun, but the deal is, is that we're all very passionate about that. We're all passionate about the way that we worship, and if you looked at church history, you would see that this was a dividing thing in churches for hundreds of years. Hymns were not widely accepted when they first came in. Uh, they changed them. It would be about scripture. Then it was about expression. And, and churches divided over this. And then came choruses. Then it was like, we want to go back to hymns. It's, it's just the way it is uh, because people take it so personally. I want, to, uh, I want to involve you here in a little experiment. And they say that the music that you listen to from the ages of 14 to 22 is what influences you and was uh, what influenced you in your formative years. It's what you judge all music by, whatever you listen to from 1422. Now think about that. For me, that's true. I mean, I'm a musician, so I like all sorts of music, but really my favorite is what I listened to at that time. So this little experiment I want to try with you is I'm going to play a song. It's Amazing Grace, but a bunch of people are singing it. And I want you to just think about it, how it makes you feel, what you like and don't like about it. If you want to guess who it is, that's fine too. So we're going to try this. Okay. Twas grace that taught Anyone know who this is? My heart this is Anne Murray, country singer. Really simple. There's a little acoustic guitar for vocal. This might be your, your thing. Really? Nobody? Doesn't get any twangier than this. This is Willie Nelson. 
has that swing feel, and it's distinctive. He scoops into every note. It's very country. Yeah, the king, Elvis. For some of you, this is what you grew up on. The vibrato in his voice. He has a great voice. Now here's another stylistic change. It's not necessarily Amazing Grace, but it's Amazing Grace, but to different melody. He changed everything. This is Todd Agnew. It's upbeat. This might be more your style. This is uh, Annie DeFranco. She is not a Christian, which is really amazing to me, the amount of people who are not believers that love Amazing Grace. Maybe it's the idea of freedom or grace. I don't know. This is a group called Sela, and it's more of that gospel root blues. You can hear it. I know what you're saying. Make it stop. This is the Lemonheads, and this would be punk style. This is Blind Boys from Alabama, and they put it to the House of the Rising Sun, so people can sing it immediately. You know that too. Very uh, dirty. This is one we sing. Hillsong, right? Yes, yes, see people singing it. So this is, to some people, this is like, yeah, this is it. A little different style. It's not traditional. Anyone know who this is? Very unique voice, too. She's fairly new. She was on American Idol in Britain. Susan Boyle. Darlene Check of Hillsong. First thing, no instruments. This would be Terry Larson's jam. This is piano. I love it. I love expression through instruments. This would be more my jam. Very guitar. This is Lincoln Brewster. in the reverb in the room. perspective um, but all these different styles now if I was to I'm not going to do this but if I was to say okay I hope you don't have any lunch plans we're going to lock the doors and you all have to agree on the one song that was your favorite that one style you laugh but now you know how hard my job is right like it's hard so we try to incorporate different styles our preferences like that's why volume is a little bit louder I'll explain that. For every person that I have say it's too loud, 
you're not going to believe this. I have people that say it's too quiet. So we try to find that middle of the road, and here's why. Here's why we do that. It's because there are people who are self-conscious about their voice, and they're not going to sing out if you can hear. And then there's other people who don't want to hear you, quite frankly. So we have the volume up, so you don't have to worry about that. We don't want you to be self-conscious about that. The other thing is we bring the lights down because it's like praying with your eyes closed. We don't want you to be distracted because I know how human nature works. You're sitting there worshiping and then you're watching. Joe's got his hand up and you're like, oh man, he's got his hand. Do I have to put my hand up? I don't want to put my hand up. Do I have to do that really? By that time, one song has gone by and you're still worrying about whether you put your hand up. Then Joe puts two hands up and you're like, oh, now he's just showboating, (laughs) right? Like, what's the point? I basically go with the assumption that we're all junior hires when it comes time to worship. We're self-conscious. We're worried about what people think about us, and we want to be cool. But that's why we do all those things that we do. I want you to understand that. So that in your worship experience, you might be able to just focus on you and God and not what anyone else is doing. So let's not make the wonderful, the wonderful God his grace and mercy ordinary. Let's put our heart behind it. Let's not just involve the mind, let's involve the heart. And let's live our lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. I'm going to ask for every head to be bowed and eyes to be closed. Lord, I so thank you for this time. I thank you for the gift of music and worship. And Lord, it doesn't just end with music, but our lives should be a living sacrifice. Lord, we should live for you every moment of our ordinary life, our eating and sleeping and going around life and give it to you, Lord. We are so thankful for what you've done and for your gift on the cross, Lord, that we can never express it. And we know that our heart sometimes fails to do so. Lord, help us to be worshipers here at Emmanuel. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. How many of you would like to say amen to that? It was a good word for us this morning because part of what we do, part of what Eddie leads us in every week is important to a relational God as we relate to Him in praise and worship. Thank you for listening to audio from Emmanuel Baptist Church, located in Billings, Montana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Emmanuel, please visit us online at www.myemmanuel.net.